Hi, this is Paul. A lot of people asking me to talk about this video. Now, before I talk about this video, let's talk about me. Let's talk about mega churches. Let's talk about... Now, I didn't have a lot of information about John Mark Comer. I had heard his name before. I had assumed he was one of these guys that was a so-called lottery winner back in the day when I was just freshly back to the United States, uh, working with church planters, uh, trying to do a turnaround church. Some of you will know what that means. When I first got to Sacramento, class of Central California decided that they were going to send every single pastor in the classes to Willow Creek in conjunction with Christian Reformed Home Missions to see if we could, you know, sort of mobilize, take all of that sweet Willow Creek seeker church, mega church energy and infuse it into the pastors of class of Central California and that would do something. Now I was just freshly in here. I I was just in from the from the Dominican Republic and just trying to get acclimated to North American ministry and I went out to Willow Creek and I had never seen anything quite like that before. And so for the first number of years I read, it was funny because I was both reading all of this business stuff and church growth stuff and also Eugene Peterson at the same time. Now Eugene Peterson gets a gets a mention in this video, not Jordan Peterson, Eugene Peterson. And of course, as I mentioned to uh, Christian Baxter, I had done a deep dive into Tim Keller in the middle of the aughts. And so I've got to confess some of my own biases and prejudices. I've got a, there's a, there's sort of a, you know how in Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about people who've eaten um, the white witch's food. Uh, there's just sort of a vibe that I get from the whole seeker church thing that just sort of sets me back. And I don't, you know, I, I, I've got to be really careful with that because that's a very common thing. If you go back about a year ago, I did a conversation with Tripp and Dr. James Wellman, who wrote this book, High on God, How Megachurches Won the Heart of America. And it's a, it, was a, it was a really helpful book for me because even though James Wellman Jr. would by no means be a man who basically from his own perspective be a real uh, cheerleader about the megachurch, he wrote this book and I think did a, did a very good job in just doing assessment. Now, you always assess from your frame, from your own perspective, but doing an assessment about the power of the megachurch and all of the good that the megachurch does. So I, I am not going to be found here just sort of dunking on megachurches and sort of lambasting and, and griping about megachurch pastors and the megachurch movement. And then Kerry Newhoff uh, has for himself for quite a while sort of created a career on leadership. Now, we've had little, we've had little spats in the corner about leadership. When I got back to Sacramento in the late 1990s, I was inundated with leadership books. Leadership, leadership, leadership. It was the big buzzword of the Seeker Church movement. 
and Bill Hybels had the leadership conference, and I went to those, and I saw some of those on, on video, and leadership books, and leadership, 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 and what leadership meant again and again and again was how to build a giant organization, how to build a prevailing church, and what a prevailing church looked like in the seeker movement was thousands, if not tens of thousands of people all under a church doing evangelism, not just of sort of dormant Christians who are out there in the environment, but making new Christians out of pagans, etc., etc., etc. Now, the, the, the seeker church sort of fell victim to the emergent church movement and sort of two of the twin stars of the uh, bizarro twin stars of the emergent church movement were um, Mark Driscoll and Nadia Bolz Weber. Now, again, if I say, I've got a video about that too. That's two years ago. Not Mark Driscoll and Nadia Bolz Weber are like opposites of the same emergent coin. It's and I've got another video which was before there was Jordan Peterson, there was Mark Driscoll, and it's it was quite fascinating to find Michaela Peterson every now and then twisting, uh, tweeting affirmations and uh, approval of Mark Driscoll. I don't know if she's going to his church now that she's living in Arizona. But, uh, yeah, in some ways, the world can't get stranger. Now, even though, even though the class of, let's say, megachurch lottery winners, that megachurch lottery winners would be young pastors who were charismatic and sharp and right there in their mid-20s, they would start a church plant and that church plant would go from first dozens of people to hundreds of people to thousands of people and book deals would follow and being on the national stage would follow, et cetera, et cetera. Apparently, uh, John Mark Comer did this in Portland, Oregon. And the it's one thing to do this in a place like the, the American Bible Belt where there's already so much Christianity there. It's a whole nother thing to do it in the Pacific Northwest, which is one of the least churches, churched areas of the United States. And so Mark Driscoll, of course, did it in Seattle. And John Mark Comer, obviously, uh, has a very different vibe than Mark Driscoll. Uh, Mark Driscoll was just sort of culturally against the flow. And John Mark Comer is much more of a winsome accommodationist in some way, but if you listen to the language he uses very much and uh, an evangelical in this space. Now, I met with someone recently who's new to just about everything here, and I had to try to define evangelical for him. And wow, that is never an easy task um, because in some ways it is as much a vibe or a sensibility as it is a definition, even though you can look at the Bebbington Four, also known as the Bebbington Quadrilateral. Bebbington is widely known for his definition of evangelicalism, referred to as the Bebbington Quadrilateral, which, is, which uh, provides in his 1989 classic Evangelicalism in Modern Britain, a history from 1730 to 1980s. Of course, read George Marsden for the context in the United States. Bebbington identifies more four main qualities which are used to defining evangelical convictions and attitudes. Biblicism, particular regard to the for the Bible. 
crucicentrism, the focus on the atoning work of Christ on the cross, conversionism, the belief that human beings need to be converted, activism, the belief that the gospel needs to be expressed in effort. Bebbington, along with Mark Knoll and others, have exerted a large amount of effort in placing evangelicalism on the world map of religious history. Though their efforts have made it more difficult for scholars to ignore the influence of evangelicals in the world since the movement's inception in the 18th century. Bunch of, bunch of footnotes there. It's very difficult to talk. The more you know about something, the more difficult it is to be sort of play fast and loose with it. But American evangelicalism has continued to change. And, and one of the big stresses around its change has tended to be the, 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 the culture war. And so you've seen evangelicals polarize. And now John Mark Comer has left being senior pastor of a successful megachurch, a multi-site megachurch in Portland, Oregon, and is now writing books. And that, that is by no means an unusual trajectory. And I, nothing he said in this interview surprised me at all. And I have so many thoughts on this, I could easily spend hours and hours and hours just on this one interview because at every different moment, that tiny little point just reaches out into an enormous trajectory of everything. And it's not, it's none of this is in any way distant from a lot of what gives energy to this network of relationships that we have tended to call this little corner. Because it talks about sort of the continued evolution of the church in North America with all of its cultural content here, now in a time and space of enormous diversity and interaction with, via the internet, with other world religions and other religious traditions. So maybe maybe it's best that we just start of just sort of start. You thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm fun to finally do this in person. So yes. thanks for having me to your home. It's weird when you feel like you know somebody but you've never actually like been embodied with them. So 100%. Yeah, nobody in the corner can understand this dynamic. Here we are. First yeah. Time. So last time we talked about this over lunch briefly, you were on. I just had so much feedback on the processing you and I did about what it's like to no longer be the lead pastor. We don't have to rehash that. People can go back to <laughs> processing my freely chosen midlife crisis. It was very healing and therapeutic for me, but I want to know if you've had any... Now, I've not listened to that. He does talk about it later. And if you do just a little bit of Googling, his wife comes up, his wife's medical issues comes up. Apparently, she's had some very difficult medical issues and has had... Um, a rather miraculous healing from those medical issues, uh, but... Um, Any other light bulbs? Like, you've moved since then, so you're in the L.A. area now. Um, how's the processing going from, like, hey, this is who I used to be to this is who I am now? Oh, man. there. I don't know how to summarize that. I think I'm still very much in the 
liminal space in the world of, you know, in the language of psychology of that in-between. Now, one of the things that is so interesting about this interview is how much psychology just permeates it. Uh, Mark, John Mark Comer, a little later, will talk about how he's been in therapy for 15 years and Carrie News, um, what's his last name? Um, Newhoff says he's been in therapy for 20 years. The what, One of the interesting dividing places that's, that's increasingly widening is in terms of people's polarity to therapy in America. There are certain elements of evangelicalism that have just gone completely therapeutic. And again, I don't mean this in a negative way. Um, I am not anti-therapy or therapists. But it has definitely gone from sort of an acute phase to, I think, much more of a devotional, pietistic phase with respect to therapy. And on this channel, we've certainly had my share of therapists on. This channel is in many ways downstream of Jordan Peterson. So it's not like you're going to look around here and, and, and find us in a, a therapy-free clean room. But the, again, um, Eamon Wilson's comment in one of the marriage crisis videos where a mentor said to him, psychology is to America as Islam is to the Middle East. I thought when he said that, it was just like, bang, yeah. And, and so that sensibility, that therapeutic posture just absolutely pervades, absolutely pervades this conversation. I'm not where I was, but I'm not where I'm going yet. And so the, the deck is still getting kind of reshuffled in really good ways. I think I'm through the most painful kind of stripping away. One, one of the things that's interesting about sort of a, the therapeutic sphere is it has it has a way of talking. It has it has a it has a voice, and you can hear that voice in both of these guys. And and again, I have heard this. I have heard this in part of the evangelical landscape, but that again tends to be much more sort of the progressive end of the evangelical landscape. The the antithetical end, the angry evangelicals, or the you know. Only, only partially civilized fundamentalists. They, they, they don't, they don't sound that way. You know, it kind of reminds me of a lot of critique of from from feminists against trad women because it always sounds like, as an, almost every sentence ends like a question, doesn't it? And and everything about sort of this manner of speaking is soft. It's soft. It's soft. No sharp edges here. And, and again, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to dunk on these guys or anything like this. I'm just. Part of it is me looking at my own response, my own emotional response, and saying, "What? What? What's? What's triggering me?" So I'm doing the therapy on myself. 
what's triggering me? What, 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 what? And I'm, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say I'm even really triggered by this, but it's just, why, what, 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 what am I, what am I hearing? What is that? And especially because a lot later on in this conversation, I mean, basically at the, at the heart of a lot of this is bringing things up to the surface so we can see them. So, emissary brain or embassy brain, as I said in the video, which Grimgridge so astutely caught and quite rightly said that that, that isn't a, I, I misspeak a lot, but there's something deeper to that, that misspeaking. I have, you know, attachments and stuff like that. And I think now, you know, there's just been a lot gets exposed you know, one of the really dangerous tricks, I think, when it comes to pastoring is probably more than almost any other job in the world. It is so easy to do the right thing for all the wrong reasons. Yes. I mean, you can. No. And that is true. <laughs> a lot of what he says is true. I agree with a ton of what he says here. And that is very true. But it's also. Now, again, I'm a third generation minister. And the Christian Reformed Church's stance with respect to evangelicalism is very complicated because even when Kristen Kobes Dumay says, I don't identify as an evangelical, she doesn't say it quite that clearly. She says, I, Christian Reformed Church is not evangelical. The Christian Reformed Church has been assimilated into the broader American religious context. And what that has meant in large terms is that some have wanted to be assimilated into the main line, which at this point sort of means being assimilated into the grave. And, and the other has sort of been assimilated into the evangelical and all the different aspects of the evangelical, including a lot of the emergent aspects, such as the young, restless, and reformed, the neo-Puritans, that's certainly um, really exerting itself right now in the Christian Reformed Church. But when you when I look at let's say my roots in my father and my grandfather, yeah, some certainly a lot of agreement in terms of let's say the let's say the fundamentalist side of the modernist fundamentalist thing, you know, a very crunchy Christianity in terms of historicity and biblicism and, and a bunch of those things, and and you know all along the way, John Mark Comer you know, puts, he, he, this dude, this dude knows his way around these kinds of conversations and he's very good at it because he knows just what to say to sort of, um, settle, settle down those who have long theological noses and are, are sort of sniffing for modernity, even when there's so much therapeutic perfume in the air that, um, it's it's there's there's a ton of nuance in this conversation that they're very careful not to sort of set off the certain theological guard dogs in the traditions but it's 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 a fascinating interview can you know preach the gospel of jesus and teach the bible and start churches and call people to discipleship and actually your motivational structure can be deeply skewed, you know, which is why you have these people that have blown up their pastoral ministries, not for lack of emphasis on Jesus mm -hmm. or lack of commitment to orthodoxy and the teaching of scripture or lack of discipleship, 
but through more. See, there's those little. It's, 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 you gotta say these words. If you say these words, you can stay on one side of the line, and still make your points. More than just emotional and health, through clearly like an underline and, and. And when I say say these words, I don't mean that he's being disingenuous or lying at all. I don't. I don't believe any of that. But it's just sort of trying to to whiff out what's what's going on here. And again, I, I, I through so much of this interview, I just think yes, he's right. Yes, he's right. Yes, he's right. There's a ton of things. I don't know how much of it we'll get through. I only have another hour or so to be playing with this, but. Ambition and ego-driven kind of motivational structure. So, you know, the pain and the gift of stepping down is all of that stuff is exposed. And so now that I have a relationship to church that has no tie to my career, my job, my income, you know, how many books I sell, I mean, whatever, my sense of self, it's just, that's gone. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the, the kind of bare naked. And, and for many pastors, and I could certainly understand that sort of liberation, that's, that's, a, that's a huge relief because when you are leading a church, when you are, I don't know if his church was, most of these churches are non-denominational, which sort of makes each megachurch pastor their own little pope or puts them in a council of all sorts of other very high-status cardinals. But, yeah, I, I, I totally get that. And, and many pastors get there when they get to retirement, but he's obviously quite a bit younger. The truth of my motivational structure is exposed. You know, for years, we all love to read Paul and just say, I am just a servant of the church. And that sounds like a beautiful platitude, but you never really know if that's true until it's tested. And I think. And one thing I really appreciated about him throughout all of this, I think he's very honest. I think he's, and and sort of being freed from the institutional responsibilities of maintaining that framework, um, lets him lets him speak freely. And then you say, well, why, how can you speak freely, Paul Vanderclay? Well, because <laughs> my church is <laughs> nobody cares about living stones. <laughs> In my case, and I would imagine this is true of most people, I'm likely a little bit worse than most, but not that much. Um, you know, my motives were mixed at best. And I don't say that in a masochistic way or any kind of guilt or shame. I think just in an honest, like, I want Jesus to continue to give me the heart of a servant. And if I'm anything like the disciples in the... And, and again, when I listen to him, I think he is, he is telling us the truth. That is that is indeed what he wants. Those of you who are sort of sniffing for duplicity or, or a grift or dishonesty, I don't smell any of that here. I think he's, I, I think he's telling us, I, I see this guy, I see both of these guys, but I see this guy as being very, very genuine and honest. He is telling us exactly what he thinks. And, and what he believes and what he's trying to live. I, I don't have I don't have a question about that at all. Four Gospels, that is a long, slow process. Because at the very yeah. end, he's still saying to them, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And his last, one of his last teaching lessons is the washing of feet. And I have set you an example. And man, my heart is so far from that servant heart of Jesus. But um, so yeah, I think it's a process. And mm. uh but it's been really good. It's stirred up a lot. It's got me thinking a lot about the church. You know, I feel like there are 
things and perspectives on the church that are much easier to access. Now, part of what I felt when I listened to this was in America, when we talk about the church, I think we often have a sense of, okay, which of the which of the church traditions? And I think listening to him, I think most of the time when he's talking about the church, he's mostly talking about Protestant evangelicals. But now I'll, I'll share a little what I stirred up on Twitter today. This picture of the Pope receiving a blessing from the Anglican Church, the head of the Anglican Church. Wow. And, and my comment was, I think the symbolism, who was I explaining symbolism to the other? Oh, it was in my men's, it was in my men's Bible study, which is on Zoom, but it's not recorded or anything like that. I, I was I was explaining how symbolism is much more caught than taught. In fact, often symbolism is very difficult to explain. And and the example I used is when you go to a when you go to a funeral and let's say a graveside and the 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 casket is lowered into the ground and people are holding flowers and they throw flowers into the grave onto the casket. Okay, what does that mean? Even when you ask questions about what does that mean, you, you sort of stop yourself because you're 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 trying to cross the brain in a way. You're trying to ask you're trying to ask the emissary brain something that the master brain is just waving its hand at and of course you know the waving this waving that George Lucas <laughs> brought to us through Obi-Wan Kenobi you know what what is this what is what where is this from you know talk about Roman Catholics in space people if someone threw a McDonald cup into the into the into the graveside people would be offended. You're throwing your trash in there? We're throwing flowers in there. Okay, what does the flower mean? And you can make up a reason. But is that does that exhaust the reason? Is that really the reason? These are unanswerable questions in many ways. Um, now, maybe if you ex explain to everyone there that for you and the person who's in the grave that you had a you had a, a monthly ritual of going to McDonald's together, but then you probably wouldn't throw the cup in. You'd probably place the cup on the casket. And my comment with this is, you know, we're all Protestants now because, you know, when I talk to Father Eric, he's like, well, you're not a priest. I said, exactly, I'm not a priest. I'm a minister. I mean, I don't, I don't make holy water. I don't, I don't do all of these things that, in fact, you need a priest to do via apostolic succession and all of this. So when this happens here, what does this mean? Even though to say, oh, this isn't this is out of bounds. Well, you're gonna have a whole wave of people say, no, this is beautiful. This is this is <laughs> and what's so funny is when I raise this on Twitter, people are sort of making comments like, you know, no, this is a beautiful thing. Well, I'm a Protestant. Priesthood of all believers, Martin Luther, remember? If you see this, you, it sort of communicates priesthood of all believers in a way. 
so what's happening? What's happening? And and I, I think it's the, no wonder the traditional Catholics are having a fit. I completely understand why they would. It's like the person at the top of their hierarchy is selling the crown jewels. He's got them out back at a garage sale. Is that what's going on? Or, or is it something deeper in terms of, but if it's deeper in terms of the unity of the church, well, 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 what, what then? And then how do the hierarchies and structures have to realign to um, take into account the new reality? When your career is not tied to it, and um, so I'm actually thinking probably more about the church right now than I have in years. And um, I find it really stimulating. Yeah, what are you thinking about the church now? You're right, because, I mean, I'm still connected to the church. I founded, I teach there very, very occasionally. But I am thinking about the church a lot. How, what are you noticing about the church that maybe... You know, in some ways, I remember when Cardinal Ratzinger... Pope Benedict retired, and it sent this shock wave. And I think rightly so. And, and what we've been seeing in terms of the drama within the Roman Catholic Church, I think, is the continuing deep conversation with the Protestant Reformation. Now, again, this is all happening as... Modernity is in some ways receding, but these things are so massive. Part of it recedes while other part of it other parts of it emerge after hundreds of years of movement. So here you have two pastors who and I didn't I haven't done I haven't done any digging. I don't know if they um, were ordained in denominations or just non-denominational churches and and, and what you're going to have in this talk in a few minutes is basically a real questioning of the capacity of the church, which gets into the question of the definition of the church. Now, I'm trying to think about what I, what I want to talk about. So this next section of the video, this next section of the video, John Mark Comer has been... Uh, some of his therapy and some of his psychology has been Jungian, and so he's been looking at shadow. And I, and I quite like what he's done with it. Again, I, I really liked a lot of this video. And so the, the processing that I'm doing is because you know, I'm, I'm Protestant just like they are. I, I like a lot of this video, and the processing that I'm doing is has everything to do with, you know, I like John Mark Comer, I've been just doing a ton of thinking about the church. So he talks about the shadow side of the church and he's not sort of simplistically, he's obviously a very smart guy, he's obviously quite well read. Which again, some people might say, well, isn't a mega church pastor supposed to be like a used car salesman? Oh, no, 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 no. These are, the, the, the senior leadership of some of these mega churches are very smart, very talented, very insightful people. And they're sort of dismissed because they've been able to deploy a form of religion that has worked powerfully in a certain segment of the population. But in my experience, many of them are, are very smart and very sharp. And the successful ones 
a good number of them were not successful by accident. Now, even though 151 views and a few of them are mine from the Friday Morning Nameless channel, Neil and McMo had a conversation. And, you know, in the early part, they talked a fair amount about the corner and, and, and some of the things that they said, it didn't surprise me, but I certainly took note of them. These three. Uh, but I know we both commented and thought about Luke's recent uh, live stream about what is a church. And I think we're both thinking about it in terms of what should a church be. Um, so we can look backwards in history. We can look forwards to where we're going and uh, modernity, post-modernity, meta-modernity, ultra-modernity. Take yeah, whatever the future of the church is going to look like or can look like. Um, I wanted to talk. So this is me selfishly. I'm going to talk about this at some point, but I want to talk about Jesus smuggling. Um, <laughs> yeah, Jesus. I, yeah. Um, and I want to. Another topic I wrote down was the thinking about TLC as the subordination of one's own tribe to the pursuit of the highest. You could say. Um, if, if we all believe in a unified good God and we are all God's children, then even if I'm Catholic and you're a Protestant or an Orthodox and, you know, uh, a Jew, if we all believe that there's something greater and higher that ultimately unifies us and also that we believe that God commands us as God's children to get along and love one another, um, that, that spirit is what I think TLC embodies. Uh, but anyway, so we're, we're always navel-gazing within the corner anyway, so I put that all the way at the end. Maybe maybe we start with church, Jesus smuggling, wherever you want to go. So over to yeah, you in so the studio. That, yeah, that, that gave, that that sparked a lot of ideas. I, I think... Now again, part of what is good about the corner, so we get to know each other a little bit, and McMo was one of the people in this corner that was on staff at a mega church and uh, is no longer on staff at a mega church, and he's got a lot of Thoughts about them. A lot of people in the corner, a um, little bit deconstructed, sort sort of post church, but not 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 really giving up on it. I'll try to start with the the one that was the last thing about the last thing you said, and maybe try to work backwards. Um, but I think one of the things that Jacob Federici said that um, has stuck with me is a really probably one of the most impactful little nuggets that i've gotten from the whole corner you know i don't know if anybody else if this has stuck out to them but one of my favorite things that he says is is, is i can't remember the exact words but it's something along the along the lines of like i know i'm annoying but you still have to love me because dad said so um you know i might be an annoying brother but you have to love me because dad said so um and of course in fact deeply ironically jesus said so and so i think that like there that kind of energy i think is just like that's kind of a nugget of it that's kind of a distillation of i think christian charity in communities like this um is like know that i might be prickly or i know that i might be weird i might say things that um uh what is it <laughs> i think of tickle your axioms but that's not what kick you in the axioms that's what it is yeah kick i prefer tickling that. Yeah, tick, I might tickle your axioms from time to time, but um, as long as you come at it from the side <laughs> and not, no, I, I don't know where I'm going yeah. with that. Go ahead. But 
I left a recent comment on one of PVK's videos, and and I think that like this is how I felt mostly about the Peterson sphere or this little corner. Um, is that it mimics, and, and this is what I thought about when I heard Estuary. So when the first time I heard Estuary, I was like, oh, that's just like small group. Like you're literally just doing like a, a cool small group where you can actually, you can literally talk about every, anything and everything and you don't have to talk about like how much you jacked off last night. And so like that for a problem. I know what he speaks, but I've never been in such a small group and I feel sorry for people for whom that was their small group. <laughs> Protestant is probably like for most Protestants is a little bit of a revolution, but, um, but I do think that TLC kind of, so the comment I made was that like, it was basically to the effect of TLC videos like this. And it was, I, it was actually one of PBK's like sermon, um, practices or whatever <laughs> sermon warmups. Um, and it, it just struck me that this is exactly the type of like high level, theology, pastoral, spiritual direction, um, partnered with kind of um, a community of uh, wise and intelligent people who weren't afraid to say what they think. Um, it was kind of like, this was the small group or the Sunday school class of my dreams. You know, like this is, um, <laughs> you know, because you, you can think about the worst Sunday school class or small group ever. And it's when everyone's kind of afraid to say something, nobody ever speaks up. You, you hear, you don't hear from, you only hear from like one person and they take, like they dominate, you know? And, and like, obviously I'm that person, you know, like if you're, if you catch me yourself too, a, man, yeah, we're if you gonna, catch yourself go in a small group with me, like you're, you're out of luck, pal. Like you're not getting any of your prayer requests tonight. I got a list, but like, <laughs> so, uh, but so yeah, I, I, I love, I, I don't like the navel gazing. Um, I kind of always find myself wishing that we would talk less about that. We would just talk less about what TLC is and that people would um, engage with it. Like there, it, it, we don't, you don't have to know what it is to find grill country, to find Luke, to find Mark, to find Grim, to find Chad. Like if you find T PVK, eventually you're going to see something. And it's, it might spark something. And so like, I don't, all of the navel gazing and all of the, um, the system builders, you know, there's, there's so many intelligent people and everyone's itching to kind of, uh, you know, have their idea be the one that sticks and colonizes PVK or the, or this, their, their kind of particular framing of the spirit kind of takes over. Like I, I'm, I fall guilty to that temptation for sure. But, um, I'm way more interested, like you said in the beginning, with the personal relationships, and then, um, like that, because that's just Grimm's, you know, virtually not alone. Like I think that that's you're not going to do better than VNA, and the VNA bubble, um, and then the rest is just kind of a practice in participation, and a practice in relationship. So like one of the things that the internet affords is I can be a little bit more disagreeable than I normally would be because I don't have to worry about you pissing me off and me smacking you in the side of the head. Um, <laughs> and I don't have to worry about me regretting that and then having to repent and feeling like shit. And, you know, I've always been good at dodging the smacks in the head, but <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Call me a heretic. Uh, no, no.
Um, but yeah, does any of that spark anything for you? I could keep going. Oh man. Uh, no, all that's awesome. Um, man, the, when you said system builders, that struck a nerve in my head. It's like all these, it's like, we, we, we got so many systems in the world right now that are un, unraveling as systems or are being dismantled as systems. And the whole strength of what we have here is it's a network of a spirit with, with no system. It's like, how, how do you kill the swarm that has no, uh, beehive? You know, there's, there's nothing to kill here except relationships. That's it. And to the extent that we build relationships, it's great. Um, I love it. It's, it's bottom up all the way. And I, I personally Bottoms think up. we, we live, I personally think we live in a, a time where that sort of, you can call it grassroots, you can call it whatever you want, but the, we, we've been living in, I mean, modernity is all about building edifices, structures up. And it's like, how high can we, how close to God can we get? It's like, oh, you watch, like all those things are being torn down. You know, the, you look at the trust, the modern trust, and I, I'm not even talking politically, I'm talking just general public trust of any institution today, universities, uh, you know, anything. Um, it's just plummeting, it's plummeting. And the only way I see, yeah, it, it has to re, we have to begin again through, we don't have to begin again, but we have to do it through relationships is my point. Um, that's the only way that we're kind of re able to start the, the building blocks. Yeah, um, so, I, I, so I, I think it's way it, it, like where we are in TLC is like 38 AD. And it's like, we're talking about a church building. It's like, what do you, what do you No, That's where we are in TLC. It's like, you know, we don't even know what we are yet. We don't even know what this is yet, but I don't know. And, and I'm, I'm being grandiose there. And I, but like, uh, but the point is that the, the, the spirit that exists in this place, whatever this non place, I really believe it's a good spirit. Hyper I really place. Believe. Now, now, what's so interesting about that is when you listen to this video and the relationship between what McMo and Neil Daedalus were saying, boy, it's they're really tracking. Because I, I, I think there's something about that. And I've noticed the older I get, John Mark. Like, it's like, it's kind of like if I put all my happiness, so Dunbar's number, really interesting theory. And I think, I think this is, Tim Keller used to write about this, but I think it comes from a Jewish theologian. With the death of the church, the death of God in our culture. You know, it's sort of, if you look at the Instagram wedding, I mean, when I got married, our wedding wasn't that expensive. It wasn't this yes. big production. We had a photographer, but it was kind of a, it was a specialized, but like not a boilerplate wedding, but there just wasn't all the pressure. Now you've got like, I read the other day, bachelor parties now cost on average, I think it's 10 or $15,000 for the bachelor party, plus the wedding, plus it has to be Instagram perfect. Plus, and you know, the, the theology under that, as Keller would say, is your wedding and your spouse is not designed to bear that. Like you, you need to worship God. Your relationship has to be bigger than that. But the, the pageantry and the ceremony of what used to be church and majesty and God and life and right order is now wow. has gone into, into your relationship. And no mm. wonder people crumble under that. Yeah. I wonder if we've done Can't a similar thing with Sunday services. Mm, you know, if you think about all the freight that Sunday morning has to bear, 
Like, if it really is, okay, I read my Bible for five minutes a day, said a quick prayer while I was driving to work, and now I'm going to Sunday, which I only catch once or twice a month anyway, by the way. Is it that, or what else is underwhelming about Sunday morning? Hmm. I think some of it is stage-based. So this is, I'm just going to, this is really probably unwise to talk about theories. We can a, cut it or we can go. On I mean, a podcast, I will let yeah. you decide if it's helpful or not. Um, and I just, you know, I, I'm pretty sensitive to people that critique based on theory but don't offer solutions hey, we that are as good or better. I mean, we're not sitting back going at other people. So, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This and is I'm some... not saying, you know, throw away your Sunday gatherings. Yeah, yeah. I just, and I, what I've been saying about Sunday gatherings is nothing new. I've been saying it for many years. But um, I think some of it is stage-based. So uh, I'm really interested in what in the secular world we call developmental psychology, what Christians would call stage theory. Mm-hmm. And there, obviously that's a polarizing concept. Are there stages to spiritual formation, to Christian development over time? And how do they map onto or sync up with just the natural human life stages of adulthood and adolescence and midlife and old age? And so some people are... Okay. <laughs> now he's going to give a ton of qualifications all the way through this, which is more than appropriate. And it, it's... If you go back to the video that I made between Ho Math and Ian McGilchrist, now this goes by almost so fast. We'll just give it a few seconds. I'm gonna go a little bit deeper. One, two, three. These are the levels of consciousness from my favorite diagram. There. Now John Mark Comer is going to go into, now, I read the comments and some, well, this is only one of the quadrants of, okay. Um, all right. I have not, I have not read Ken Wilber's theory of everything, but part of the dilemma of our complex world is that you have to evaluate things with a grossly unfair introduction to them. And you might say, oh, that's that's ho- that's a horrible way to be. Well, do you evaluate any other world religion with a grossly unfair introduction to them? I would say always, because none of us have enough time, or almost none of us have enough time, to actually give a fair evaluation of any world religion behind just a sort of momentary sniff. And my point here isn't even the integral levels or any of this. My point is back to the emissary, the emissary propensity of having to create this. And again, back to this video that I made, there's, this is what we do. That's half the brain. Okay. But it's just good to pay attention to the dynamic as we're are really resistant to any attempt at spiritual cartography to kind of map the spiritual journey. I think with all sorts of disclaimers, I'm generally a fan because I just think anything, mm. anything that aids self-awareness, whether it's a personality theory like the Myers-Briggs or a... No, no it's so interesting because he said anything that aids self-awareness and later on in this conversation, he's going to be talking about the later stages of spiritual formation and he's going to say something which in some ways sort of completely upends this cult of self-awareness first he's going to do some hagiography over eugene peterson like i remember 
visiting Eugene Peterson. I was one of the last pastor groups that mm. got to visit him. And, you know, and he was nearing the end. You could tell he was very elderly at that point. You could tell his body was starting to slowly kind of wind down. But I mean, he just, it was, we always said to each other, it's like being in the presence of a saint. And he didn't say anything that we'd not read in his books. So it was not like we were Wasn't taking- Wasn't you're getting the last no, unpublished No, it was like, thoughts. honestly, every single thing he said we'd read before. And, um, you know, some of it was kind of boring, but just like being in his presence was just like the peace, the love, the sense of like union with God. You could almost like, it permeated the room. And, and so you just see Richard Rowland saying, yeah, <laughs> evangelicals don't have saints? Come on. So, you know, that's, that's the final stage. So that's, I think, in their theory, again, this is all theory. This is not capital T truth. Um, but in their theory, those are kind of the next stages that come. And I think that as a general rule, the first half, the first three stages are more linear. And the last three stages are not linear at all. So if you were to draw it out, it wouldn't be a straight line, but it'd be more of just a, a slow kind of windy line through those first three stages. And then, you know, by stages four and five, it would just be a hornet's, a bird's nest, you know what I mean? Of just forward, backward, we often feel like we're regressing, not progressing, we're breaking down, not breaking through, you know, and we're in the wilderness, not in the promised land. And those often are the seasons in the second half of life where, where we grow the most. And often we don't even realize it because we're so aware that we're not in control of our formation. And those first stages, I feel like our spiritual formation, our discipleship, we feel a little bit more in control of them. Mm. And in the second stage, second stages, you know, we become, becomes much clearer to us that we are absolutely not in control of mm -hmm. our formation. And God's grace is targeting us at the areas that we are most desperately in need of it. And often in the areas that we don't even want it. We're like, don't touch that in me, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Leave don't, it alone. Don't make this book a flop. Or it's okay. too painful. Yeah, uh -huh. I mean, that, I'm sure that would be good for me to be free of the need for a successful book. But the, the pain would be too deep. I'm okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So you see all of these tensions between, on one hand, we have to bring it to awareness. And once we bring it, again, this is, this is real modernity. We have to bring it to awareness. And so once we have it in awareness, we can, this is real emissary brain. We have it in awareness. Now we have it in awareness. Now we can make it all work for us. Now we can build this system. Now we can do all of this. And when you get to the last stages of this system that comes out of a study out of Fuller Seminary, you learn that actually you you really weren't much in control of any of the stuff, even though. So again, I just don't have time to go through this whole video, but I do want to hit some of the some of the earlier parts too, like the Myers Briggs or a stage theory about where you're at in life. Anything that is helpful to get at access to our shadow, I think, is helpful in the spiritual journey. It's helpful to open up deeper and deeper places of us to grace. And that in my meta level, 30,000 foot, that's basically my view of formation is the driving, the central question of discipleship is how do we open up deeper and deeper parts of ourself to the work of the Holy Spirit, to, hmm. to grace, to transformation. Now, now, part of one thing that I'm just going to point out too is that the focus here is on the individual. And it is individualism. Again, that's deeply a part of Western individualism, but that's sort of the, the goal of the church is, is the formation of the individual, which, okay, that's certainly a goal of the church, but 
I think probably a New Testament perspective is much more. The goal is actually the purification of the body that is the church, that is the bride of Christ to present her. Because we can't do it. So how do we open up the broken parts of ourselves, the wounded parts of ourselves to him? Um, so I think uh, stage theory is really interesting to me. There's a bunch of different great ones. They're all theories. None of them are capital T truth. None of them are chapter and verse. None of them are empirically verified. What he said right there was a throwaway comment. None of them are capital T truth. What is that? Rationality. None of them are chapter and verse. What is that? Biblicism. None of them are empirically proven. What is that? Empiricism. He hit the Reformation and then the two things that happens after the Reformation as the, the tests. So deeply modern, that is sort of modern church. It's the three big ones right there. It's a throwaway comment, but the fact that it's throwaway is sort of the tell. Here in modernity, these are the big three for a Christian. If you're not Christian, you lose the, the biblicism, and then you're just left with the rationality versus empiricism. Bible. But there's a lot that I think ring pretty true, and there's one I really like out of Fuller Seminary, The Critical Journey, and I would imagine you're familiar with that. No, I don't know that. Uh, professors Janet Hagberg, I think, and Michael Gulick. So there is a book. It's called The Critical Journey. I did a teaching on it many years ago. You can find that's a popular version of it. And they basically break the spiritual journey into six stages. We don't need to go through those. But at the end, they argue that these stages are not inevitable, that most Christians in America never mature beyond stage three. Mm. So the first three stages are uh, stage one is that they call it recognition of God. Uh, ancient Christians would call it awakening. Evangelicals would call it getting saved. Um, stage two, they call the life of discipleship. They don't mean discipleship as I would use that word, but they mean like basic kind of discipleship to Jesus, learning to mm -hmm. read your Bible, go to church, be in a small group, learning basic Christian doctrine. And then stage three is what they call the productive life. So you become, you produce, you, be, you do things for Jesus now. Mm -hmm. You lead a small group or you lead a missions team or you join the board at your church or you become a deacon or you, you know, become a youth pastor or you're doing something or you're taking your work seriously as a follower. Now this for some in the corner is very relevant because if you go to Job's conversation with, Job's conversation with Chad, well, very quickly they... You know, via Jordan Peterson, via the corner, they become Christians, they join a church, because Vanderclay and Peugeot, at least, are keeping telling them to join a church, and very quickly, once they're in a church, very quickly, their, their competence is recognized by the church and they become deacons and elders. And they're like, well, well, what has happened to me in just a few years? I was skepticism about, I was skeptical about the whole process, including God, and now, just a few years later, I'm part of the institution. This, this this analysis is there's a lot of it that is deeply deeply right. Word of Jesus, all beautiful things, and but that's just the first half of the spiritual journey. All that to say, I think that Sunday-based churches are pretty helpful for people in those first three stages, yep. and increasingly unhelpful after that, which is why you have this tragic. Now, this whole section just fascinated me, and I thought there is a lot to this that is dead on right. ...phenomenon where a lot of the people that have the deepest appetite for psycho-spiritual psycho development, they want to psychologically mature and they want to spiritually mature, often the enemies at work in all of our hearts 
feel the need, let's just set aside whether it's legitimate or wildly illegitimate, feel the need to step out of Sunday-based churches and almost graduate from that in Mm -hmm. order to continue the spiritual journey. And um, I think their blame can be placed on both sides. You know, on one hand, you could say that's just narcissism eating you up now that you're not getting what you used to when you were 24 and you're hearing a sermon series or whatever, and you're like, oh my gosh, I never had any idea. Now you're 44 and you're like, I've heard this sermon series nine times and it's not helping me fix my... And I've led this group ...wayward teenager or my Mm -hmm. broken marriage or my addiction Mm -hmm. to whatever or my pain from my childhood. And so then they move on, which is often just a way to deepen narcissism. I'm not saying it's wrong always to do that, but rather than liberate your heart from it. But on the church side, we often, most churches offer, often offer no discipleship pathway past that third stage. So it's basically, most churches do evangelism pretty well. They do basic discipleship pretty well. And then they invite people into leadership. lead a small group, volunteer, lead this team, do her thing. And of course, I think he's right. You also had the reality, of course, pre-Reformation in the monasteries. And I think monasteries tended to do next-level things for individuals. But I think some of what brought down the monasteries showed the flaws of those systems, too. Again, I thought this section was brilliant and super helpful for me. And, and there's a there, I, I don't have much more time. There's a ton more I could say about it. I just don't have the time. And then that's where the vision of human maturity, spiritual maturity, tends to end. Hmm. And so, like, I think a good thought exercise for pastors is imagine all of your core leaders. Like at Bridgetown, we had about 150 people. We had a lot of really good core leaders that were all leading home communities for us, leading ministries on staff, in eldership, on our board of directors. I think a great question to ask is um, what's, and Tyler Staten just did this recently with a group of leaders, what's your vision for them 10 years from now? Mm-hmm. Like what's your dream? If they stay in leadership at your, not your community, but the community you serve and shepherd, what's your dream? What's your vision? And is that- Okay, now we're getting at the telos. And his, his critique is what they do is they basically top out in the church and then they have to get out in order to continue development. But sometimes the development happens in parallel ways outside the church. Sometimes it happens through deconstruction. They get stuck at other different levels. I thought this whole section was brilliant. And, and then the question is, well, what, you know, surely the church is going to need to have upper levels. But now remember... We're, we're having a much broader conversation about what is the church and, and how, on, on what substrata is, is, is the church, can the church be seen, is the church made of? This, is, this, is, this, this really grabbed hold of me. Is there any intentional pathway to see that vision become a reality for them 10, 15, 20 years from now? Or is it just, I need them to lead? And by leading, they will grow. And the rea- and of course, the telos here, and part of the critique of, of the therapeutic culture and of psychology is that there's a ton of telos sneaking into psychology. And a lot of it's good Christian stuff, actually. It's born out of the West. It's born out of Christianity. It's born out of all of this. But, but it, is, it is sort of snuck in. 
and let's see how quickly he gets to where I, I want him to go. Reality is by leading, they may grow. Leadership, I think, offers us access to our shadow. It exposes all the things that are wrong with us. Mm -hmm. So it gives us the chance to grow. But leadership may just as well mess people up. Like a lot of people lead and they just get bitter, cynical, burned out, turned off. So it's not like a surefire recipe. So I think um, part of my underwhelm with Sunday services is just that I'm, you know, not that far down the spiritual path, but I'm not 25 anymore. Mm -hmm. And sitting through a sermon series on whatever is not as life-changing for me at this point in my journey as it was at that point in my journey. I'm a little bit less emotion-driven now at this point. Mm -hmm. the, the problems I'm facing in my, you know, sin that's in my body are much deeper and are not solved by information and inspiration for the most part. I need, I need I'm way too messed up for that. And it's a much, much deeper stuff that it's working, that Jesus is working on in me now. And, um, and then I think part of it, and this is embarrassing, but there is just the American consumer mentality that is the air we breathe. It's like breathing secondhand smoke. I can't help but imbibe the consumerism of our culture. And in a TED Talk, internet-based podcast world, you know, unless if your local preacher is John Tyson or, you know, a couple of years, you know, not that long ago, Tim Keller, it's pretty hard to not be a little bit bored, you know? And that's just the hard truth in a pre-recording era. You weren't... And this is very much a part of this little corner and the dynamics of the people that are in it used to hearing Spurgeon every week. You would just hear your local preacher. Mm -hmm. And now we're used to Netflix and Hulu and podcasting the best preachers in the world. And that makes it a little harder to sit still for 45 minutes and listen to a good local pastor, you know, but who's not that. Okay. I've been thinking about that a lot. And I think about it, I process it, John Mark, through the lens of what I think of as the new scarcity. So you're exactly mm. right. Spurgeon was scarce. I mean, maybe you read his sermons printed up yep. in a newspaper yep. or you happen to be in a city, he's in the pulpit. You get to hear him once in a lifetime if you're out of town. But information was scarce, which is why three-point charges, right, which I started at from the 19th century. What's you that? do the circuit what's on Sunday three, morning. What's a three-point charge? Okay. I've got to go a little ahead of, because I'm, I'm running out of time here. I mean, in the critical journey, they name the next couple of stages. Um, in their theory, you hit this, not a stage, but an experience that, you know, and they label, it's not this linear. And they would say over and over again, life is not this linear. And we mature unevenly. We might sure. be ahead in one stage in one aspect of our life and behind in another. But they have this concept they call the wall, which is some kind of an experience. I think of the AA line, the only way out is through meaning it's some kind of an experience of pain and suffering that you can't bypass or deny or fake it till you make it. It's something that will permanently stand in your path. It could be a divorce. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be failure, bankruptcy. It could be a terminal disease or a chronic illness, any number of things. But there's no way around it. The only way out is through. And so you can either stop in your spiritual journey or regress in your spiritual journey, mm -hmm. um, which is what a lot of people do, like the phenomenon of deconstruction. One way to think about that psychologically is people go through the first three stages of Christian spiritual development. They hit the wall. They have some kind of 
experience of pain and suffering. And rather than go through it, they jump ship to another, I'll just use the word religious system. And I don't mean, I mean that in the more Keller sense of like a system of beliefs, ideas, values, practices that give meaning and purpose to life. Um, that could be the three most common that I saw in Portland were third wave anti-racism, all things LGBTQ and pride and kind of um, ally kind of worldview, activist worldview, and then careerism, kind mm -hmm. of like work is God. Those are the three most common alternative religions that I saw in Portland. So people jump ship and then they go back and they start at phase one again. It's awakening, but now it's a different religion. And so it's like they're born again and they're just on a high and they're in this honeymoon phase and I can't believe it, I never saw before and I never realized this and I was blind and I was dumb and I was lost and I've been saved. It's basically a salvation motif. And then they become a life of discipleship. Then they're learning and they're reading and they're, and they're taking all of this information in and then the productive life, then they're doing things and they're leading things and they're saying things. And it's just inevitable that people will hit the wall again. Mm. And then what? So in the critical journeys, um, the next stage is if you go through the wall, you go into stage four that they call the inner journey or the journey inward, which would be basically like the, <laughs> the valley, you know mm. what I mean? Or the wilderness, this period often marked by a lot of soul searching and millennial language. You do the work often of therapy around family of origin and your relationship to your parents and your culture and your shadow and your personality and your Enneagram number, all that stuff. Um, it's good space for that. Then stage five is what they call the journey outward. So you go through that. And again, if you continue to mature and people get stuck at every single one of these phases, there's some people that go into therapy and the deep work. And then 20 years later, they're still just still in the deep work, bemoaning. Still yeah, still stuck. Mom, still, dad, I'm overwhelmed. You're 60. Yeah. And that's important work to mm -hmm. do, mm -hmm. but you don't want to get stuck there. You need to move through it, not through it that like we're some problem to solve or some formula that you hack and fix. The human soul is way more complex than that. And I don't mean that in an unkind way at all. Just I think most people would agree there is a season, you know, I see it a lot when people start therapy. It's like it often gets worse before it gets better. And they just, every conversation you had with, have with them is just very negative. And that is actually, I think, a healthy part of almost like getting the impurities out of your system. It's almost like a charcoal cleanse of your body. Dense gratitude, parents, and all of that. Almost into, it looks very similar to stage three, the productive life. You're out doing things now again. You're leading often. You're serving. You're making a contribution through your church or ministry or work. But it's, so from the outside, it looks very similar to stage three, but it's very different because your motivational structure is radically different. You are now, you don't need, uh, you don't need what you used to need from success. You know, there's that Rollheiser line, success still feels good in the second half of life, but it has very little to teach us. Meaning past that stage, we're learning yeah. way more from our failure. We learn a lot from our successes early on because they tell us what we should do with our life. Whereas if, you're, if you have the, the favor and the grace to be successful. All right, I gotta, this whole section is excellent. And I very much recommend this video and especially the first part. I haven't gotten all the way to the end. There's some other stuff later on that I didn't think was quite so helpful. But but this this system I found very interesting and the fact that people sort of hit this wall and then they try other religious systems. I thought that was that was dead on right. And and then they and then at the end they've been as I played the the clip about Eugene Peterson later, they fortunately in the system they've got quite a bit better wisdom in terms of well, we're not going to sort of stratify this because 
as I've mentioned very often, the video I made, how do simple Christians often outperform sophisticated Christians? Um, so this is, this is just enormously complex. And again, we tend to look at, um, we, we tend to look at sort of these individual, these individual ladders that, that in often cases sort of mirror Maslow or a bunch of other, uh, again, Christianity is sort of looking over the shoulder of the psychologist saying, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll just Christianize this. And of course, that's a, that's a huge evangelical thing where you just, you know, Pat Boone was doing that. Um, these people, Christian evangelicals have been just ba basically playing a certain game of me too with the rest of the culture. And you take out the cuss words and you take out the boobs and you, you take out the um, anything else that's sort of objectionable, but it's but it's basically the same thing that the secular culture is doing. It's just safe for the whole family. It's fish radio. Um, but I am out of time, and there's obviously way more to talk about, which I probably never will get to. But the the conversation is excellent, and I, I fronted a lot of the sort of my own little disclaimers, and and John Mark Comer gives tons of disclaimers on through here so I, I very much do not want to characterize his critique or anything as shallow um, I thought it was I thought it was very helpful and it sort of goes into the goes into the stew in terms of me thinking okay what what exactly are we doing on here on YouTube together um, what, what, what exactly what exactly is God doing through this? So, again, I got this video from a bunch of you, so I know a bunch of you are watching it. And because I've made this video, some of you will get a taste of it, and a bunch of you will watch the whole thing through. So, yeah, I look forward to reading your comments.